I'm going to start off by saying something that uh, some of you are likely to disagree with, and I understand it, but perhaps by the end of the message, you'll see where I was coming from. As we sit here today, each and every one of us desires greatness. We, we've actually pursued greatness throughout most of our life. Now, let me give you this caveat. It's not that it was at the front of our minds that we knowingly are desirous of greatness or pursuing greatness, but it's something that's so deeply embedded in us that we do it without even knowing it. Now, it gets to the, the crux of the thing, though, the, the fork in the road is, is what do we mean by greatness? Who, who defines greatness? I mean, if we were to, you know, ask for ideas about it, we'd have lots of differing, diverse ideas about greatness. What, what does that entail? For some of us, greatness would, would look something like this. Not exactly, but you'll get where I'm going. So let me share this with you. This is Queen Elizabeth, and I'm going to tell you, man, for what it's worth, that is one cool-looking hat. Uh, <laughs> I really, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure she's had to put a tremendous amount of work in to learn to maneuver that hat. And um, she's probably terribly underpaid. She made $105 million last year. Um, not enough for handling that hat. That takes a lot more than that. But of course, she, she has a complex life. Uh, she has 11,000 servants. I'm just curious. How many of you in here have a servant? Can I see your hands? You have no servants? You have no one to help you with your, your regular requirements in life, your responsibilities? This is what would come to some minds, not necessarily her, but the idea of greatness would be that you have tremendous power, tremendous influence to get people to serve you, to get your will, to get your way, to have people do what you want them to do, when you want them to do it, how you want them to do it. You might have a picture in mind of, uh, could be a celebrity, could be an athlete, could be a geopolitical figure, but, but greatness are people that, that they are the movers and the shakers, they have clout, they get people in various ways to serve them. And we, some of us, and a lot of the world, thinks of that in terms of greatness. Now, we're in a series called The Paradoxes of Life. And Jesus is going to introduce a paradox on this idea of greatness. So, when we look at Scripture, I've said each week, uh, often it seems to us paradoxical because, first of all, and I say this repeatedly because I want it to sink into your hearts and minds, you and I don't know how much we don't know. We really think we know a lot about life and a lot about the universe, but we don't really know how much we don't know. Secondly, we also don't know how much Jesus really actually does know about everything, seeing as though he is the creator of the universe. Because we don't know how much we don't know and we don't know how much he does know, Sometimes spiritual truth seems contradictory to us even though it is true. That is what a paradox is about. Paradox is something that is true even though it may seem or sound contradictory. So here's our paradox for today. Jesus says to become great, become a, what is the word? A servant. Now that's, that's kind of paradoxical. That's contradictory. That doesn't make sense because we think in terms of when someone is great, lots of people are around them serving them, and that is the mark of greatness, or at least that's what many people in society think, perhaps not you guys that have been, you know, around Scripture and that sort of thing. But I'm going to introduce a portion of Scripture to you, and here's the context. When you come to this, what we're going to read it's literally the last months of Jesus' ministry. He's been with his disciples over three years. It's about three and a half years in total. But these are the last months. He has repeatedly told them 
how this thing ends that he goes to the cross that he's rejected by the religious leaders that he's crucified that he's killed that he's buried but that he rises again the third day he's repeated this at the beginning of his ministry twice in the middle two times toward the end it's something that should have been very much in the forefront of their conscious uh, minds but evidently not reason being what we have to understand we have to get into a first century context Jews of that day expected the Messiah to be a geopolitical figure that would overthrow the Roman Empire and take control of the nations of the world in a geopolitical fashion but we know that the human problem has never been government and we we have tried all kinds of governments through human history and they're all uh, poor in solving the real problems of humanity because they're they're put together by imperfect humans well-meaning but the problem that I have the problem that you have is inside of me Uh, I was born with a propensity to seek my own selfish desires even when I know they are wrong and even when I see what is right I don't always do it so were you the scripture is very honest it says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God meaning we fall short of the image that God intended us to wear it says there's none of us righteous no not one that's the real problem so the real Messiah came to rescue us from this thing called sin what is sin sin is living contrary to the way that God designed us to live he doesn't want to wreck our joy he doesn't want to steal our fun he wants to rescue us from that which he knows is ultimately hurtful to us and hurtful to others sin can be celebratory enjoyable lots of fun in the early stages but it comes with a very high price tag ultimately so Jews in the first century they're looking for a militaristic political messiah and Jesus was coming to solve the real problem in human beings we sin because we have broken trust with our creator and we can't break the power of sin in our lives until we authentically from our hearts trust our creator again believe that he knows what's best wants what's best loves us more than we love ourselves. until we get to that place where we go from distrust to trust sin has got a death hold on every human being that ever has lived and ever will live so the messiah came to accomplish something deeper in the human heart in the human psyche not something geopolitical but in the first century they were looking for a geopolitical messiah so kind of keep that in mind as we're about to read this passage here we go months away from the cross the mother of james and john by the way out of the 12 there were peter james and john that were kind of like jesus inner circle he would invite them sometimes to various uh, miracles that he did that he didn't invite the others to Uh, he had his own purposes for that they had a different calling anyway the mother of james and john came to jesus with her two sons she knelt down and started begging him to do something for her get the get the picture here's james and john their mom (laughs) their mom is bringing them in and she's begging jesus what what is she begging jesus to do for her sons jesus asked her what she wanted and she said when you come into your kingdom please let one of my sons sit at your right side and the other at your left so what is she requesting she's saying jesus when when you come into geopolitical power and you're ruling over the whole earth man i want james on one side and john on the other i want them to be the number twos in the power structure of this new geopolitical kingdom that's what she was thinking her idea of greatness was you control other people you you get them to do what you want done they serve you you order them about jesus is going to correct this thought jesus answered 
forgive me, got a little brain fluid leaking. <laughs> it's a joke because some of you don't know, but my nose has literally been running for about 10 years now. And I read this article that said it could be brain fluid. So for what it's worth, <laughs> Jesus answered. Now, this is important. Jesus is answering the mom, the two brothers. Not one of you knows what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I must soon drink? What is he talking about? He's months away from the cross. He knows it's coming. He, he's introducing something. They thought that God was shallow enough that he would just arbitrarily give out positions of function. How many of you ever worked for uh, a company where if you can figure out what the boss's thing is, you, you kind of get better treatment? You know, like, like your boss likes to hunt or fish or, uh, you know, maybe crochet. I don't know what your boss is into. But if you show interest in what the boss is interested in, your boss shows you special attention. How many have had situations, work situations? Like I, I actually did, okay? These brothers and their mom had such a shallow view of God, and I'm gonna expand on that a bit, that they thought that God could just arbitrarily give out positions of function based on you know, emotional connections, uh, you know, mutual interest or whatever. That is a terrible view of God. Jesus is going to introduce something that I'm going to kind of lay out for you in, in, in a kind of a sidelight here. But Jesus is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you want to rule on my right-hand side? Do you know? Do you know what it takes to be entrusted with that much power? Are you ready to drink the cup of suffering that I'm ready to drink? When you get to the book of Revelation 5, we sang a song about, oh, about opening the scroll. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? In Revelation 5, read it on your own. Nobody on the planet is found worthy to open the scroll of human destiny. And then Jesus, slain, steps forward. It's saying that he has demonstrated that his almighty power is always governed by his sacrificial love. Therefore, he is worthy. He's worthy to be trusted with power and might and dominion and so forth. Jesus is telling these guys, you're asking for something arbitrarily based on selfishness, and you have no idea the way God actually works. God gives power to those who have proven trustworthy and faithful and unselfish in the use of that power. Let me, let me go on. So, not one of you knows what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I must soon drink? James and John said, yes, we are. Now, again, they're clueless. They, they think the cup is just something spiritual and not the actual cross sufferings. Jesus replied, you certainly will drink from my cup. They end up dying, both of them, uh, martyrs' deaths because of their devotion to Jesus. So they did drink partially from his cup. But it isn't for me to say who will sit at my right side and at my left. This is for my father to say. He's introducing a concept. Let me introduce it to you more thoroughly. The kingdom of God is a meritocracy. What is meritocracy? It means that positions are given to individuals that have demonstrated they are trustworthy to fulfill the positions. They are not given arbitrarily. They are not given based on you know emotional connections or anything like that. Meritocracy is God is looking at us and based on our faithfulness, in other words, it's not about ability or anything like that. We all have differing abilities that God's given to us, but it's based on our faithfulness with the circumstances and abilities that he does give us. But make no mistake, the kingdom of God is a meritocracy. It is based on merit, but it's merit that's faith-based. How faithful have I been? Here's some scripture supporting it, Psalm 62, 12, and it's all through the Bible. I could give you tons of supporting verses. And with you, Lord... 
is unfailing love one of the results of God's unfailing love is and you reward everyone according to what does it say you with me on this how many, how many you, you, you checked out <laughs> he's going to reward everyone according to what they have done thank you thank you you make me feel a little less lonely it was a little lonely here for a minute second Corinthians 5 10 it says every one of us this is New Testament every one of us will have to stand without pretense before Christ our judge and we shall be rewarded for come on come on crowd for what we did you're doing something I'm doing something you're faithful I'm faithful various degrees and we will be rewarded as we stand before Christ to be judged now I know some of you are like whoa whoa whoa, whoa stop stop right there what, what, what about by grace you're saved through faith and it's the gift of God not of works so that no one boasts what, what about all that I, th- I thought we were just saved by God's unmerited mercy and favor grace you know well that's true because of the, what he is saving us from I can't save myself from sin you can't save yourself from sin it took Christ restoring our trust by revealing the sacrificial love of God on the cross now the barriers our distrust our disregard for God our disinterest in God they all potentially are removed so that we can return to God in trust we were created by Christ and for Christ meant to live in a perfect union of trust with him and so of course I can't save myself you can't save yourself salvation if you want to call it salvation it has to be by grace God just intervenes reveals himself sacrificially loving offers us forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone that will return to him in trust so if you've put your trust in Christ and you are his follower you became his follower you can rightly say without being proud without being presumptuous because the scripture says this Jesus promises he said that anybody that puts their trust in him and becomes his follower has present tense eternal life and the forgiveness of all their sins now that's all by grace but from the point that we become reconciled to God by returning to Christ in trust and becoming his follower then God because he loves us so much and takes our lives so seriously our lives matter so much I I know our society treats us like some lives really really matter and everybody's going to buy tickets to hear them do something say something hit a ball whatever it is but the rest of us we're just kind of the ticket buyers you know we're we're not as valuable and important that's not the way God sees it he sees your life and every part of it every single aspect as so important to him that he's going to record it does record it and we are going to be rewarded for how we have handled each and everything that's come along faithful or unfaithful obedient or disobedient now it doesn't mean that we're not going to be forgiven that's not it this is a reward now it does go on to say in second corinthians for what we did when we lived in our bodies whether good or what is the word randy that sounds like sin it's not what it really is saying there bad meaning I can put my trust in Christ become his follower receive forgiveness of sins receive eternal life and then instead of pursuing his will for my life I pursue my will for my life and I fail to use the time that he's entrusted to me it's a time is a treasure folks you, you know once you spend your time you can't get it back I don't use the time that he's given me responsibly or the treasure, the finances that he entrusted me or the talents that he's given me. If I don't use my stewardship of life, let's put it like that, wisely in a God-honoring way, in a way to bless others, well, then I will be considered a bad steward of my time in the body and I won't receive rewards. First Corinthians 3 talks about some people that, that just barely 
make the cut, as it were, because they wasted their time, talents, treasure, opportunities, giftings, experiences, and so forth. All right, so meritocracy, once you put your trust in Christ and become his follower, grace before, because we can't save ourselves. But once we are saved, God gives us the ability to then live meaningful, unselfish, godly lives. And we all do it on various levels, and we all do it imperfectly, very imperfectly. But the goal should be that we're always seeking to grow, to develop, and to do what we do better. Okay, let me go back to the passage. Whoops, I forgot this most important point. We are, as we sit here today, we are all auditioning for our positions and functions for eternity. The scripture is redundant on this, that my faithfulness, your faithfulness in this life, handling again those times, those talents, those treasures, those experiences, those gifts, those spiritual gifts and abilities, how faithful I am with those things will determine. I'm auditioning. I'm showing myself worthy. I'm showing I'm merit worthy to be given function and position for eternity because God does not indiscriminately give power and authority unless a person has proved themselves unselfish servants with the power that's entrusted to them so we're all auditioning for our positions in eternity and it will be very meaningful i i i hear people like i remember this one guy years ago when our church was uh still back at ballinger creek we, we were in ballinger creek for 12 years ballinger creek elementary school we were in south frederick elementary school for one year but i remember this one guy he was a real character and uh, we got in this conversation he said randy he said i'm gonna tell you something man if, if i make the cut if i get into heaven you know that's it I don't care I don't care Randy if I sit on sleep on a park bench in heaven he literally used those words I'm good to go and I was trying to explain to him I said Calvin there's more to it man you know in essence what that's saying you're auditioning for your eternal future eternity is going to be a complex society very much like the one that we live in only far far better there's going to be multi-functions multi-positions ton, tons of complex interactions societal interaction and and we're auditioning by how faithful how interested how devoted or how unfaithful disinterested undevoted we are okay let me go back to the passage now so Matthew 20 verse 24 when the 10 others now now the two have been bargaining using their mom to bargain for positions of power when the 10 others when the 10 other disciples heard this they were angry with the two brothers but Jesus called the disciples together and said you know foreign rulers like to order their people around their picture of greatness was the greater you are, the more people you control. You get them to do what you want done. You, you control others. You order them around. And their great leaders have full power over everyone they rule. But don't act like them. If you want to be great, and as I said at the beginning, every human being is driven toward greatness. We were designed to be capable of greatness. It's in us. And we were destined to be great. You'll see what I mean by the end of the message. But don't act like them. If any of you wants to be great, you must be, what is the word? Servant of all others. Again, it sounds contradictory. So, and the disciples were certainly struggling with it. Let me show you how much they struggle with this. So this is probably, you know, two or three months before the cross. Just about eight or nine days before the cross, 
this breaks out again in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11 and 12. I'll refer to it. I'll actually show it to you a little later. So mind you, eight or nine days before the cross, they are still stewing about this. Who's going to be the dog in the kingdom? Who's going to have the power? They're still holding to this view of geopolitical power as opposed to the power to give and to serve and to make God known to others. It gets worse. The last night, <laughs> the very last night, that Jesus is with his disciples. I'm just curious, how many have ever read John chapter 13? Because from it has come a custom in certain churches, something, we're gonna do communion today, but we're not gonna do this part of communion. There are certain churches that have a peculiar custom when they do communion. Can somebody risk shouting out what that peculiar custom is? Foot washing, yes, thank you. Foot washing, and it comes from John chapter 13. Okay, so we read John chapter 13. It's the last night that Jesus is with his disciples and it talks about how Jesus knew that he was from God and he was going back to God and that all power was his on heaven and earth. So he's the most secure one of the bunch and Jesus gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. Now we read that, but we don't know what's happened just before Jesus does that. Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. You read it on your own sometime. It tells us what had happened. Luke 22, verses 24 through 27, tells us that those disciples, the last night that Jesus was with them, it said they had been arguing, arguing about who would be the greatest. Here Jesus is then washing their feet to try to get that notion of greatness out of their head, that greatness is the one that has the capacity and the desire to serve and to give and to bless, not the desire to control others. So next time you, you think about that whole scene there, hopefully it'll be a little more meaningful to you. Anyway, Jesus says, if you want to be great, greatness is a good thing to want. You were destined to be great. You were designed. You have the capacities to be great, but you've got to choose the right kind of greatness. Right now, you are, I am, we're all pursuing greatness, consciously and unconsciously, mostly unconsciously. The only question is, is what kind of greatness are we consciously or unconsciously pursuing? So let's look at the first type. Do we want to be great enough to be served by others? Is that the kind of greatness that we're knowingly or unknowingly pursuing? I want to be great, but I want, I want greatness in it. I want to get my way with everyone all the time, everywhere I go. I want to control others. I want to influence others. I want to have them serving me, doing what I want. Is that the kind of greatness that we are perhaps unconsciously pursuing? And it shows itself in small and great ways, even in our most close relationships with people. So let's look on. James 3, and we saw this break out amongst disciples. James 3 says, wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. The two brothers ask for these positions of power. The other ten get jealous. The two brothers are selfishly ambitious. And next thing you know, relational conflict occurs. When you have people that are out for themselves, selfishly ambitious, it says you're going to have disorder, which is the whole notion of conflict, but also evil of every kind, meaning that, that people will do anything to do to get what they want. Now, it begs a question, why do we humans, if Jesus says that's not real greatness, real greatness is being the servant of all, if that's not real greatness, why do we so categorically across the globe, throughout human history, why do we pursue and love this form of greatness? This control over others, getting others to serve us. Where did this come from? I mean, why, why do we pursue this? Why does it seem to be so embedded in our psyche? 
I'm going to drift on you, but don't worry. This is going somewhere, okay? I'm just curious now. I'm going to take you back, then I'm going to take you forward. How many of you can remember, perhaps when you were in high school, maybe middle school, in my case it was junior high school, how many of you can remember when there were just, there there was this unspoken group of ethereal, they're the cool people, and if they're wearing this, it's in style. You, if they're wearing this, you got to get this. How, how many had that when you were in school? Yeah, I, I, when I was in junior high school, there was this guy named Benjamin Ashman. If Benjamin Ashman was wearing it, you had to get it. You had to wear it. I don't know where Benny got his money. It was an expensive dresser, you know. The Beatles, okay? We don't like to think about it. All us guys here in America had short hair until the Beatles came along. Okay, all of a sudden, every man had to have long hair. How many of you grew your hair out at one time? Can I see? I used to have hair down in the middle of my back. Yeah, hippie. But we all started with the Beatles. How many of you are like me? I'm very glad that the Beatles never decided to wear their underwear on the outside of their pants. <laughs> there I'd have been. I'd have had album pictures of me with my underwear on the outside. And so would you. You would have had them too. You'd have been explaining to your son, well, son, uh, that's just the way people wore their underwear in those days. You wouldn't have told them. I wanted to be cool in the eyes of the Beatles, you know. They were hip, hip and happening, and whatever they liked, it must be good. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going somewhere really pretty deep theologically. We have been convinced as a species, as the human race, that it's really the zenith of experience, the greatest experience we can have to have others dependent upon us, cowering, uh, looking to us for direction and, and for us to control them. We saw, on some level have been convinced that's the life, man. Now, where did this come from? Because it's affected all of us. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And if any of you have been in this church for long, you know I will often refer back because I want people to have the big picture of what's happening in the universe. It goes back to the Garden of Eden where this, this angel, this angry angel comes into the garden and deceives humanity. Adam and Eve is humanity at its best. It's you and I at our best. And in the process of deceiving humanity, he says things like this. God had said, you know, you can eat any of the trees you want. You can do what you want in this, this particular garden I'll put you in. But just stay, stay away from this one tree because if you eat of it, you will die. And the first thing this angel says is, you're not going to die? Are you kidding me? God's lying to you. He, he doesn't always tell the truth. That's the insinuation. He says, you won't die. He says, in fact, you will yourself become like God. And there's multiple insinuations woven into that. Insinuation number one, God has a delicate ego and he's keeping you guys down. He wants to keep you dumb and he wants to keep you down. He wants you looking up at him and depending upon him and, you know, needing him for everything. He, he really feels good when he's in control. He wants you serving him. And so it gets into Adam and Eve's psyche into every human sense this must be cool this must be the best experience that a human can have to have power over others that's why we're so prone to this this anemic form of of greatness the second thing he insinuates there is that not only is God a power monger and he can't be trusted but he holds back from us he doesn't want us to experience the quality of life that he himself does Satan says if you eat of this thing man you'll not only be independent you'll be like God yourself so there's all these false insinuations but the one that is stuck is this idea that to have power if God himself is like this he's like the coolest in the universe he's got all power he created everything if he wants to be the dog always in control of everything and everyone 
then it must be desirable and we have been pursuing power and greatness of the wrong kind ever since and we have a bloody history of humanity showing how we have pursued this endlessly it never ends wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition there you will find disorder and evil of every kind let me share another verse with you Philippians 2 it says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interest of others why would God put such a command like that such an exhortation such a direction I mean doesn't every human being just naturally look out for the interest of others and give consideration to the needs of others no no it's very unnatural for me and and even after following Christ for many many years I have to struggle with this and if you have a shred of honesty in you (laughs) you know it's true of you too it's really easy for me to think about my own needs what's happening inside of me I'm I'm attuned to that I'm aware of it it takes effort it takes conscious effort for me to tune into others it's taken me decades to learn to do that reasonably well at this stage and so it is with you so when scripture tells us this, we, we have the propensity already to want to control others, to want to use others, to get our will, our way, and it takes uh, contrary steps to get to this place where we're actually thinking through things about the way it's going to impact others. One last one. Matthew 23, I already shared this with you earlier. This takes place maybe eight or nine days before the cross. Jesus speaking he says the greatest among you the greatest among you will be your servant I'll share why for those who exalt themselves that's the one that wants power to control others and get others to serve us those who exalt themselves will be humbled and human history is a record an endless record of that every relationship is an endless record of that if if you or I knowingly or unknowingly we seek to be in control we will destroy uh, those close to us and the relationships we have with them but those who humble themselves will be exalted why it goes back to meritocracy when we humble ourselves and we become servants we prove to be trustworthy with power God can then entrust us with uh, responsibility and opportunities to serve that go right on into eternity so that's how this thing works out let me go to the next point so do we want to be great enough to be the servant of others because Jesus said if you want to be great you got to be the servant of others now the first thing that comes to your mind I suppose is is why do we have to be told this I mean um, why doesn't it just happen fluidly and automatically I mean if you love someone if you care about someone shouldn't it be just spontaneous that we we seek to serve them I mean Jesus kind of divided the whole human race up into two different kinds of people people that we meet knowingly or unknowingly and they say I want you to do my will and then there's other people we meet and they say how can I help you how can I bless you how can I serve you I don't I don't need anything from you but I have been put across your life God has put me across your path and I just want to know what I can, is there anything I can do for you can I give you some encouragement can I help you can I guide you can I what can I do can I can I roll up my sleeves and do a task there are two different kinds of people there are those that we meet that say how can I serve you how can I bless you how can I help you and there are those that we meet that say how can you serve me bless me help me what are you going to do for me what value are you bringing to my life what enjoyment are you going to bring to me 
I mean, how is my association with you going to affect or benefit me as opposed to how can my association with you affect and benefit you? Two very different. I mean, one goes through, you know, society goes through life essentially with, with, with an iron-fisted grip saying, I'm here, what are you going to do for me? The other goes through with a servant's towel on their arm and says, I'm here, what can I do with you or for you? Very different. By the way, when we knowingly or unknowingly seek to get others to serve us, we are setting ourselves up for endless frustration. We, we will have lots of frustration inwardly. We will have lots of conflict outwardly when we knowingly or unknowingly are seeking to get others to, to serve us and do our will. Do we want to be great enough to be the servant of others? It takes capacity to do that. Let's go on, share some scripture with you. And this is, to me, the utmost uh, of motivation, incentive to become a servant of the kind that Jesus says, to embrace the greatness of being a servant that Jesus says. In your relationships with one another, notice he's putting it at a very practical level, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, attitude, perspective, whatever term rings with you, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, what was that mindset? Who being in very nature, what is the word? God. Jesus was God when he was on earth. He is God. He always has been God. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, with the Spirit. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. The Father is not superior to the Son. They have different functions that they have, the three have decided on into eternity, in eternity past. But Jesus is God. More importantly, Jesus is God now making himself vulnerably and entirely known both to angelic civilizations and to humanity. That's why the focus of Scripture is always on Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What what does that mean? Um, How about this? We all know the miracles that Jesus did. Did Jesus ever have to experience any discomfort at all while he was here on this earth did he not display that he had the power to make himself completely comfortable i mean you all have climate control or or some form of climate control you may not have ac but we all have some form of climate control at least in the wintertime we have heat how many of you know jesus did not have climate control is that news to anybody how how many how many you know one one guy there's always one uh how many of you knew that jesus i'm just gonna ask how many of you have a car can i see your hands yeah there you go Jesus didn't have a car how many of you can do this and light comes on in your house just poof yeah Jesus didn't have that could he have used his supernatural ability his power that created the universe just by speaking it into existence couldn't he have used it to make his time here on earth extraordinarily comfortable and easy but he didn't but you got to get this this is the this is the key he chose deliberately not to he chose to make himself uncomfortable he chose to become a servant because he knew that we would never trust God the way that we needed to trust God unless we saw that God was safe and that he was kind and that he was loving and that he was generous and that he was forgiving and that he was good and that that he was unselfishly devoted to us so Jesus took the hard road he humbled himself he chose he didn't use his power to his own advantage if you and I are going to be those that go through life saying how can I serve you 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 gotta just notch this off it means that 
we're choosing to make our lives less comfortable than they could be we, we can choose to make our lives as comfortable as they can be we can do that but if we are going to be servants, we are going to have to make choices. We're going to have to look at our time. We're going to have to look at our priorities. We're going to have to look at the way we handle, you know, relationships and the way we spend money and all kinds of things. We're going to have to choose to be a little less comfortable now in order to be servants now, just like Jesus. He didn't use any of his power for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a, what is the word? Servant, servant. servant being made in human likeness the greatest incentive for you and I to want to be servants is to understand God is the greatest servant in the universe he needs nothing he created us with nothing but sheer love in his heart go back in your eternity past where there's nothing or no one and here's God saying what, what, is, what is the kindest most loving most generous thing that I could do well it's very easy to, to say what that is. To create beings that are like myself, beings that can experience all that I experience in life, beings that can love and feel and choose and will. And I, I'm going to create beings. The greatest gift I can give, I'm going to create beings that have the capacity to experience life like I myself experience it with full knowledge that both the angels and the humans are going to misuse these capacities that I give. And they're going to bring great pain to my heart and great pain to one another but I know that I'll be able to pull it back all together and then eliminate evil forever. God had to make that choice. I'm going to make beings in my image because it's the most generous thing I can do. I know they're going to create evil and bring evil into existence, but I'll also suffer that until I can abolish it forever. All, all that's involved in being made a servant. God is the greatest servant in the universe, and he's genuinely humble. When Jesus said, you know, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, all you that are burdened, and I'll give you rest. He said, I'm, I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. God is authentically humble. He doesn't need accolades. When you read in the book of Revelation of people worshiping God in, in ecstatic form, when you read in the book of Isaiah of these angelic beings that are just day and night going, holy, 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 what they're literally saying in Revelation is like, now that we know you, now that we see what you're like, there's nobody like you. You're the only one that takes all your power and governs it by sacrificial goodness and love. You're the safest, most beautiful, most tender-hearted, most compassionate, most forgiving, most wonderful person in the universe. They're worshiping, not out of some kind of fear or not out of some kind of uh, attempt to earn merit. They're like just, they're, they're knocked sick with how beautiful this being is. How many of you can remember the first time you felt head over heels in love with somebody can I see your hands can you really remember that you know you're like on the phone for three four hours at a time and all that kind of thing and it's like this euphoria man it's like we all know it um, when you see the scenes of worship that's what's happening it's no different than when you and I get struck you know by a beautiful sunlight or a beautiful beach or a beautiful mountain setting or, or a beautiful deed by somebody Worship is this authentic thing that erupts because I've never seen anybody as wonderful, as good, as worthy as you. That's why they keep saying, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy. But it's because he has demonstrated himself. Meritocracy, think again. God has proven himself worthy in that he made image-bearing beings and then he sacrificed his own comfort, even his life, in order to reconcile those of us that he could reconcile. Let me go on. I'm running out of time. 
Galatians 6, this is where it gets personal. May we never tire of doing what is good and right before our Lord, because in his season we shall bring in a great harvest if we can just, what is the word? Persist. We all can get tired of doing what is right and good because sometimes we inadvertently expect, you know, a response of various sorts and we can't expect response. We should do good just because the universe is headed for good. Goodness has an eternal time element in it. Anything less than goodness does not. Then it goes on to say this. This is the really key one. Verse 10. So seize any what? Any opportunity. We all have various kinds of opportunities all week long around the clock as long as we're living and breathing seize any opportunity the Lord gives you he gives us these opportunities but what are the opportunities for seize any opportunity the Lord gives you to do good things and be a what does it say a blessing to everyone everyone but especially those within our faithful family meaning fellow followers of Christ this is where it gets intense and personal. It says that God causes our paths to cross with endless opportunities, and he urges us. He says, seize every opportunity that you get to do something good. How do we become great? We become great by seizing the opportunities to serve, to do good, to bless others. I'm going somewhere with this. You, you have, and I have, varying degrees of dormant capacities we are made in the image of Christ Christ is the greatest servant in the universe you have I have capacities given to us to be great great servants but those capacities may be dormant they need to be activated and then after they're activated they have tremendous capacity for development and if you we don't do we don't develop two different ways of doing a marathon first person decides I'm going to run a marathon 26.3 miles and so that's going to take a lot of energy so what I'm going to do is I'm going to for the next six months I'm going to lay perfectly still on my couch I'm saving up my energy man because I'm going to need every bit when I decide to run that marathon the other person gets out and they're training every day every day they're pushing themselves beyond the limit you see what I'm saying we develop by doing God has put this process in place until all right i don't want you to i don't want you to misunderstand me i said this first service churches are notorious for guilt tripping people into service this is not about me trying to get you to serve okay so turn that switch off but i'm going to speak the truth in love to you until some of us step into the ring and instead of sitting outside and being observers until we actually serve somewhere serve somebody we're going to feel like well I don't have the ability to serve I don't have the time I don't have the emotional stamina I I, I just I I don't have anything to give I don't have any abilities I I don't have any learnings or experiences I I can't serve it's all I can do I'm just doggy paddling through life and my head's bobbing up and down in the water and you know I can't be expected to serve anybody else that is very true for some of us perhaps because all of our serving capacities are dormant they haven't been activated and they are underdeveloped you have to I have to step into the ring and just say I'm going to start serving someone somewhere I'm going to seize an opportunity to do good I'm going to seize more opportunities each day each week each month each year I'm going to keep on seizing them and you're going to find those capacities are indeed in you it's going to get really good to you you're going to start liking this thing of going through life saying man I don't need anything from you but 
If I can do you some good, I want to do you some good. If you, if you appreciate it, that's cool. I'm, that's icing on the cake. If you don't, no problem. No problem. It's my honor to serve you. You start going through life like that, things start coming alive in you, and you will find not only are you able to serve, you're able to serve more extensively, you're able to serve more creatively, and you have tons of ability and energy that you didn't have until you stepped forward and said, you know, I'm going to start doing something. I'm just trying to say that, no guilt trip, but some of us, we've just been sitting back watching for too long. So ask this question. Are you serving someone somewhere? Are you seizing the opportunities to do good to bless that God puts across our path because they're meant to catalyze these dormant capacities and then to develop them further and in the process we start becoming great people great people you may not get all the accolades that you would like to get in this life you may not get all the appreciation you'd like to get in this life don't even try to because man your reward is waiting for you on the other side remember how we started we said that the kingdom of God is a meritocracy and those that are proven to be faithful with what's entrusted to us in this life, we're going to be rewarded. And the reward is going to be capacities and opportunities to serve on an eternal, extensive level that are yet ahead of us. Let me go on. Galatians 5.13. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only don't let this freedom be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses. I can use all my time, all my talent, all my training, you know, all, all, my, all my treasure, all my money. I, I can use all my experiences, all my gifting just to make my life more comfortable. I can do that. You can do that. But God urges us to do something else don't he says don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge yourself selfish impulses make your life more comfortable more easy breezy but serve each other through love the idea seems to be that if you love it's just natural you're going to want to find ways to bless to give to serve i'm just curious don't raise your hand how many of you are suspicious perhaps at least a little bit that there are some conflicts there are some friction in places in your life maybe at work maybe at home maybe you know elsewhere that might be at least minimized somewhat if you just changed your attitude and said, you know, I'm just going to go in this thing to serve, to bless. I'm, I'm not going to go in there to try to get my will done or get my way or get someone to serve me. It's just a thought. I'm going to close with four, four attributes, four practices that if, if each of us embrace these, we will become what Jesus said, great. He said, you want to become great you got to become a servant here's the qualities we need number one is humility <laughs> servants have to be humble when i was reading that stuff about queen elizabeth you know she's got 1100 servants one of the things that they are all supposed to do is kind of the be seen but not heard they are to be silent in her presence and they are to sort of try to shrink themselves into the background so that their presence doesn't exist except when the queen asks for something then they're you know yes yes your majesty yes you know they're supposed to get right to her and then they got to go in the background again when they walk down the corridors in the palace they have to walk on the sides they can't walk in the middle servants have to be humble if if we are not 
secure in our relationship with Christ if we don't know that Christ created us for himself and he died for us and we're still struggling with self-esteem issues man you got to start right there and end right there Christ created you for himself and he loves you so much he died for you you don't have to prove your worth to anyone including yourself but it calls for humility the next one is this one availability no availability no servant no servant no greatness that means I must, you must, we must look at our schedules and control them and carve pieces out so that we are available to serve. The next one is flexibility. You know, God's going to put us into situations and have us cross paths with people, and we're going to feel inept, and we will be inept. But if we just keep that servant's towel over our arm and say, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but I just want to bless you the best I can. I want to serve you. God will guide us. He'll direct us he'll enlighten us he'll keep giving us experiences until our ability to serve in multi situations multiple people multiple different types of people it will grow but it takes flexibility you're not going to feel comfortable is what I'm trying to say if you want to feel comfortable you won't be a servant and then finally this one continuity I'm going to do this because this is my destiny the universe one day for all eternity is going to be inhabited by servant-hearted people there's this old creepy preacher story i can tell it in about a minute you want to hear it okay it's about these people this is not biblical at all so please <laughs> you know mind. about these people that they're in heaven and you're you're given a view of people in heaven and they're sitting at this big banquet table and it's all this great food but they've got these three foot long forks and they're all just sitting there smiling and they look full and happy and then they they show hell and strangely enough hell has got the same banquet table the exact same foods the exact same three foot long forks but everybody in hell is looking angry and bitter and they're all emaciated looking well what's the difference foods the same forks the same well in heaven the people with the three foot forks they're reaching across and they're feeding somebody across they're they're serving each other everybody's full everybody's happy because they're all serving each other everybody in heaven is emaciated and angry because nobody's going to budge they're all waiting to be served we're all going to go out of here today as those that have enlisted ourselves to be servants because we we serve and we follow the greatest servant in the universe when jesus was you know closing out his ministry that last night when his disciples were still arguing who's going to be the greatest Luke 22 24 through 27 Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper or communion we're, we're going to have communion in just a minute but here's the thing as they're bickering and arguing he's trying to prepare them to understand that this is the last night I'm going to be with you guys until the kingdom comes and even though I'm going to rise from the dead nevertheless this is a special moment whether they got it or not I don't know then he tells us that we as his followers are to continue this practice now now we only do it here about every six weeks but it's meant to give us a kind of a jolt a physical jolt about the spiritual reality that our God is the greatest most sacrificial loving servant in the universe and that the same way he died humiliated mocked beaten the same way he died on the cross so many years ago that same love that motivated him it, it exists in his heart today for you until you put your name in there until you personalize it if you sit there or if I sit there and say God still love the world generically that doesn't mean a thing but it's when I say you got you got to be kidding nobody has ever felt that way about me but you do you did and you do so every time we take these elements I'm gonna try not to spill them this service last 
service, I spilled them all over. There we go. Um, Christ wants us to remember, I literally love you to death. How many have heard people say that before? I love that person to death. <laughs> well, Jesus literally loves us to death. He said to his disciples then, I'll say it to you now, he said, guys, he said, this bread that I'm giving you, he broke it and he started handing it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take of the bread and it's meant to jolt our memory to the sacrificial love Christ has for us. It says, after the supper, he took a cup, a cup of wine, and he said to him, he said, this, this wine, it represents my blood that is about to be shed for you. Once again, he said, drink this, do this in remembrance of me. They couldn't take it in then. Certainly they understood it after he rose from the grave, went to the cross and rose from the grave, but we understand it now. Let's remember the sacrificial servanthood love of our Lord for each of us today. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, you, you know us inside out. We'll stand before you someday to, to be judged, to be rewarded. And we just pray that as you look into our hearts and look into our lives, that you'll help us sort some things out, make ourselves available, and become the, the great people, the great servant people that you've created us to be. May your spirit wrestle with us until that becomes entirely true. I ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.